Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to Cracking Addiction. And once again, we have with us the good Mr. Stephen Hurd. Hello, Steve. How are you? I'm really well, thanks, uh, Fergal. Thanks for having me uh, back again. I'm very pleased to have you back. So I thought today we'd have a little chat about the intersection between AOD and family violence. What, what are your immediate thoughts to that? Immediate thoughts? Immediate thoughts? Um, it's actually a big topic, <laughs> but I guess my, my immediate thoughts are uh, uh, around things like um, causation, I guess. Yeah. Uh, does AOD cause family violence? Uh, or, or does family violence cause AOD? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the other way to look at it. That's the other way to look at it, of course. Um, or and, is AOD a tool for family violence? It's a tool for family violence, and it's also a coping strategy for family violence. So it's a tool, exactly right. it's a coping strategy, yeah. and does it cause family violence? Well, if it did cause family violence, what do you reckon? If we just stopped, at, stopped AOD use altogether, then family violence would... Well, I mean, that's, that's a fabulous line, isn't it? If we stopped AOD use, you know, mm. we would solve so many problems in this world. Uh, first of all, I don't think it's possible to stop AOD use. And secondly, I don't believe that stopping AOD use, certainly in the case of family violence, I don't believe that stopping AOD use would stop family violence. Because remember, family violence is all about choices and control. People choose to use family violence. And I think they, I think people who, the people who choose to use family violence, and that itself, by the way, that's just triggered another thought. People who choose to use family violence is also the more received synonym for perpetrators of family violence, isn't it? So people who choose to use family violence will use family violence irrespective of their, of their mental state. I mean, intoxication may, may worsen the impulsivity, but there is still an underlying choice. What do you think? Well, that's my opinion. What What do you think? That's right. Yeah, and but we certainly know. We certainly know a few things, and that is, uh, uh, family violence exists without alcohol and other drug involvement. Yeah, uh, and that's a that's, that's well known. We also know family violence isn't just a one-off in, incident, and we might see conflict on the news or, or whatever between a, a couple reported. Um, where, say, ICE might have been involved and we say, oh, clearly the ICE that caused the conflict. But we know that your family violence is a long-term set of behaviours, not just a one-off incident. So when it comes to assessing the involvement of substances, uh, we really have to look at a broader picture. So let's let's explore the the breadth of that broader picture. Well, you know, when you say we have to look at the broader picture, let's let's look at that in more detail. Yeah. Yeah, the, the nature of family violence, as we've yeah, talked about in, in a couple of episodes ago, is over a long term of having parent control over the partner. Typically, a male partner wanting to control his uh, female partner, and you, 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 can, you conceptualise that as you know, treating the female partner as an object and just a possession. And that's a, that's a really useful and, and simple way of looking, looking at it uh, mm. for a lot of good reasons. Now, when, when, people, uh, when people start treating other people as possessions or objects, that, to me, immediately triggers the concept of psychopath. Okay. That's what psychopaths Could do. Well do. Could well do. 
Uh, so I, am I saying that all people who use family violence are psychopaths? Probably not. I'm not mm. saying that, but it mm. makes you think. Well, it triggers a lot of thoughts now around you know, different personalities and, and, and the different strategies that there, there exist to control another person based on, uh, in my understanding, that is based on the skills and, and personality of the, the person involved. Yeah. Narcissism, um, you know, being a psychopath, antisocial behaviour, yeah. uh, lack of empathy, yeah. Um, my own uh, level of cognitive ability, my yeah. own uh, IQ, so to speak, um, my on, wealth, my education. On, on that note, does IQ increase or decrease or affect at all the risk of family violence, do you think? Oh, I haven't read anything separately, but I would say it would just be across the board. But yeah. certainly, certainly when it comes to uh, disability, people with disability and it's a general statement and I would say probably applies to people with uh, intellectual disability that there's a much greater chance for people with a disability to experience family violence yes than to use family violence so that, and that is to known. use and to use family violence or then to use family oh, violence. oh then to use right right yeah so if so you're disabled in any way victim. yeah 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 definitely yeah Whereas I mean, we, see, the, we see mental health issues and concerns as being so chaotic and problematic to ourselves as individuals, we think, oh, well, they're obviously the problem. But often, often people with disabilities, well, most of the time, people with disabilities are the victim. Yeah. So you've just triggered in me this idea of, you know, what, what are the risk factors for violence? I'm not talking, talking specifically about family violence, but for me, psychological risk factors for violence per se include history of previous violence, being male, being an adult rather than under the age of 18, having a low IQ, being estranged and being substance affected. So for me, estrangement and uh, low IQ and substance affected, those are really quite telling. Because again, it talks to, I mean, if you're at risk of violence, then surely you're also at risk of family violence. So I wonder to what extent do those risk factors apply to family violence. And then I suppose it goes back to the original opening statement, the intersection between AOD and family violence. Mm. So it does, the, so go on. Yeah, just let's, let's address that uh, risk factors for using violence. Mm. Uh, the, the evidence really says that it is around gender inequality. It is a gender Simple thing. as that. It's as simple as that. It's about having um, attitudes that this other person is less powerful than me. If, if, if you can imagine a, an array of a, a graph, right? We've got a graph, and we've got um, an individual sense of power in society. Yeah. And, and we all, all appear as a little dot somewhere there, you know, across mm. here. We all appear as a little dot. So, my, my humble and uh, sort of uh, popular sort of notion to myself is that. People who want to use family violence do so or identify people with lower power. And they can use their power over them. That their strategies, their tools, their personality inputs um, and their gender preferences uh, will attract them to someone with lower power. And That's fascinating. Will, so even, even before marriage, before the, during the, the, the courtship, the dating game, when you when you're choosing prospective mates, as it were, you when you're prospective long-term relationships, you you gravitate if you're uh, if someone is going to engage in family violence, you gravitate to those whom you perceive to be weaker than yourself. 
Yes, and, and that sort of helps guarantee success. With the, so therefore, can, is, can the opposite of that be also true, that people who, are, who feel themselves to be weak, are they themselves more at risk of being the victims of family violence? In that model, they probably would, but other, other skills come into play. Oh, do tell. Uh, so, pardon? Do tell. <laughs> what skills come into play? Do tell. Well, it's about the, uh, the specific opportunities of how people intersect. Right. Um, how, a, how a person, let's say a, a, a male perpetrator, um, might groom a prospective partner, right? And he gets flipped off by nine out of ten, right? But that one in ten, yeah, gets attracted for some reason. For some reason, right? And I guess on that side of the fence, my corollary is that some some partners, and this sort of relates to why people might choose to stay in relationships is that it's safer to be with someone you know rather than be out in the street mm -hmm. and that, that actually reminds me of an exact statement from a client that we had a female client we had who said exactly that that she'd prefer to sustain the beatings that she had on a regular basis once a week or, or so interspersed with calm but that was better than being um, homeless. And your sort of heart goes out, it sort of makes you stop and think as to what this power of, of family violence has over that individual and then how often that situation occurs um, in, our, in our society. Mm. But the nature of a, a woman needing to uh, be protected uh, by her partner mm. and being protected from other perpetrators, from other predators. So I think it's really important at this point just to emphasize, though, that at no point are we in any way victim blaming. That's exactly and no, right. And, and basically, the, the, the only person who's responsible for family violence is the perpetrator of family violence. That's right. Yeah, let's, let's just be absolutely clear about that. Uh, yeah, I hope my language reflects that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's about the active choices that someone makes to uh, provide safety for themselves. And yeah. staying in an abusive relationship may be safer for them than yeah. the alternate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we can only just sort of help to support that that situation better, identify and focus on the behaviours of the perpetrator, mm -hmm. make that more visible and make them more accountable. Yeah. That's exactly right. I remember that there was a book out in the... 70s or 80s, I think, that I happened to read. It was called Prone to Violence. And it tried to set the case for why women were in abusive relationships. This is in the sort of the early stages of us thinking about what family violence is about. And it came up with this notion of, well, some women are just prone to violence. They're just prone to going into abusive relationships, which really means we're victim blaming. Yes. And we're allowing the perpetrators to get away with what they get away with. Yeah. The phrase, they bring it on themselves, I've heard mm. that said. And, and that's just absolutely not true. We, we do not support that point of view at all. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and, I, and I guess, and I guess we, we, we also look at uh, uh, where, where alcohol, for instance, right? if we sort of get back to the, 
Now, I sort of talk, we drifted off topic a bit, but, uh, <laughs> but how alcohol plays a part in both the perpetration and the victim status of a of, of a relationship. Or in All a, right. So, in well, have we have we finally decided? Does alcohol or other does alcohol increase the risk of family violence on the part of the perpetrator? What it does do, it increases the frequency and severity. Right. And and in studies with alcohol, it says even on the day of consumption, increases the risk that uh, there's going to be um, significant family, uh, significant physical violence. Right. So it doesn't so the cause it, but it increases the frequency and the severity. Yeah. 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 I, and, and in my mental behaviour change, uh, behaviour change programs, um, I used yeah. to explain that in terms of sort of like a magnifying glass. Yeah. On the on the on the person, and it just makes bigger. What those beliefs or insecurities mm -hmm. or those uh, uh, yeah. attitudes are, yeah. and disinhibits, um, and it certainly does other biological functions around um, you know, uh, reducing ability to self-regulate and in the moment and those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, but then we look back; we can step back though and say, well, actually, there's a whole pathway to consuming alcohol mm -hmm. to getting intoxicated to a point where it gives permission to that person to use violence and subsequently blame the alcohol for that. Tell me more about that. Give us some examples in your experience. I think there's, I think it's more sort of accessible now, I guess. There's, there's a phrase we've probably heard a lot of on the news around alcohol fuel violence. Yes. And it sort of tells us, oh, it's alcohol fuel violence. It, Alcohol was to blame. Alcohol was to blame. And that, that's, so, yeah. so we get messages from news on a nightly basis that mm. substances cause violence. And we can relate and we relate that in our in a simple way to family violence. We, we see family violence as physical um, incidents and that kind of thing. And then when alcohol is involved, we, we default to saying alcohol is a problem. And then yeah. and then so when wh um, why do people say alcohol is a problem? Well, it's why do perpetrators say alcohol is a problem? Well, it's much easier to blame this other thing mm. and look outward than look inward. Yeah. So it's a deflection of responsibility, isn't it? It absolves me of yeah. my responsibility. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Maintaining my regulate my my, yeah. my mutually respectful relationship. Yeah, and it and also it gives me permission to. It um, also hides or obscures the fact, and I go back to this point: that family violence is a choice. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. That's right. And when we try and disguise it to say, well, I was drunk. Yeah. I don't know right. what happened. I blacked out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said something to me there, though, that I thought we need to explore a bit more. You said that the decision to get intoxicated isn't spontaneous. Or I paraphrase that, but, you know, the, 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 there are choices. There's a series of choices that lead towards being intoxicated and lead towards family violence. Can we explore those a little bit? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it, we've sort of got to step back in that sort of decision-making process and permission-granting process, I guess. And certainly when, when these events occur over and over again and I get drunk, uh, use violence, blackout, can't remember, um, try to get whole... Uh, uh, be made accountable by my partner or friends or family or broader systems, mm. then it continues. So at what point, at what point is, the, is that individual going to then say, well, I'm actually making decisions to have 
more substances, and I know what the outcome's going to be. Mm. Maybe the first time it was all brand new territory. Mm. However, it doesn't take too many reoccurrences to really say, well, this is a pattern, yeah. and there are choices there, uh, no, and uh, knowing all too well what the um, what the outcome's going to be. Yeah. And I suppose really it reflects back to, you know, the AOD counselling point of view where certainly when we're talking about relapse prevention, people give themselves permission to relapse long before the relapse occurs. So actually relapse starts in the head before it starts in the bottle. Mm. And I, I guess suppose... there's, there's this inflated, from the family violence front, there's this inflated view of self to say I can manage it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, I control it. It doesn't control me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, there are others that might describe people who believe that they can control their substance use or their alcohol consumption as the dry drunk. Yeah, is that is that denial, you know, where you are currently sober, but you're you're in denial about the power that, that the substance has over you. I wonder if there's a correlation between the dry drunk and family violence. Interesting. I'm not sure if I've heard that phrase, but... Uh... Um, that'd be interesting to explore. Mm. You know, on do the, people... Sorry, go on. Yeah. I, I was going to look at the, on the flip side. All right. What if a victim's drunk? Well, I, I think we should... Um, I think we should, we need to explore the effects of substances on the victim, uh, perhaps in another episode. You know, we, we, we're, perhaps in this episode, we are running out of time. We're going to have to think about how, how, how we conclude this issue around how substances affect... The perpetrator. And I guess just to wrap that up is that we really separate the substances from the family violence behaviour. And the responsibility for the violence is within the person, not within the substance. Though uh, substances play, play a part in severity and frequency. That's the, that, and, that's the common, and that's the common understanding in uh, modern research. On that sweet note, Stephen, I think we're going to have to call it uh, for today. Thank you so okay. much for your pearls of wisdom. Thanks, Phil. Next time. That's all for today, folks. My name's Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction. Yeah.